Good morning, Maple Grove. Good morning. All right, that's pretty good. I'm going to let that one slide. Okay, so we are in an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew, the King and His Kingdom. And currently what we're doing, we're doing a deep dive into the most well-known prayer in the world, a prayer that Jesus unveiled in His Kingdom Manifesto, a prayer that God's people have been praying for 2,000 years, a prayer that we know as the, as the Lord's Prayer. And so far in this journey, we have looked at the first 11 words of this prayer. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be your name. Our calls us into community, calls us into relationships. Our reminds us that we are not an only child in this family, that we're part of something that's bigger than ourselves. Our breaks down walls, creates community, diffuses conflict. Our empowers God's dreams for us to become reality. Our meets our innate needs to be both known and accepted. Our Father. The word Father invites us in the intimacy with the Creator. I understand, with this one word, Jesus made a radical shift in the way that people approach God. I understand, not one time from the garden to Jesus did anyone ever address God as Father. Yes, God is a sovereign king of the universe who stretched out billions of galaxies with his hands, but yet we can still approach him with confidence because he's our Father. And brothers and sisters, our Father loves, our Father listens, our Father cares, our Father is good, our Father is available. We just need to talk to him. That's what prayer is. Our Father who art in the heavens, and these five words, who art in the heavens, proclaim three great truths about God. God is great, God is near, and there's more going on than our eyes can see. There's more going on than what we can see at the five-foot level because sometimes in our life, at the five-foot level, things are not looking so good, but there's a much bigger picture going on. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And listen, when you and I pray those words, hallowed be your name, uh, we're saying, Father, I I want the way that I live at home, at work, at school, wherever, to be different, to be distinct, to be set apart from the world. We're saying, Father, I want to pursue a personal, practical, progressive holiness. We're saying, Father, I want the way that I live my life to bring you honor and glory by revealing who you are and showing the world how life can be lived. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be your name. Eleven words that are just overflowing with meaning, power, insight, comfort, inspiration, and purpose. And this morning, we're going to begin a deep dive into the next 14 words of the Lord's Prayer. And I say begin because it's a two-parter. We'll finish next week with unpacking your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, for years, we prayed those words. But what do they actually mean? Like, like what exactly is the kingdom? And why is the kingdom so important that Jesus said that we should make it a part of our regular prayers? Okay, here's how I want to attack our conversation this morning, October the 23rd, 2022, by answering four questions. What is the kingdom? What does the kingdom look like? Where is the kingdom? And what does it mean to pray these 
14 words. Before we go there, a few quick reminders. We're going to have our monthly mission meal is after service. And uh, all the proceeds, right, that means the money after we pay for the food will go towards Compassion Sunday, which was last week. 73 people took part in Compassion Sunday. Walls were painted. Food was cooked. Hugs were given. Cards were played. Flowers were planted. Treats were given. Feet were massaged. Debris was removed. Poison ivy was gotten rid of. A house was pressure washed. A deck was pressure washed. A shed was organized. Gutters were cleaned. A chimney cap was repaired. Fun was had. And a sense of joy and purpose was experienced by everyone. Amen? Amen. What a great day that was. And if you took pictures, send those to Hannah. We're creating a video for next week. But it, it was a great day being the church, right? I mean, two widows, a single mom, an elderly couple, and residents at Laurels, and people staying at Ronald McDonald's house were blessed because of what you guys did last week. And not one person could do it by themselves, right? But together, we made a difference, right? And that's what it's about. Also, the other announcement is... Next week is Membership Sunday, and uh, if, you, if you have been coming to the Grove, like, or since COVID started, you know, I encourage you to think about becoming a member of Maple Grove. I made four incredible videos. They've gone viral already, shut down YouTube, right? But I made four videos, right? And, and uh, when one's going to talk about, hey, here's our identity, Here's what we, next video, here's our core values and beliefs. Here's our vision and here's our structure. I encourage you to watch those videos uh, to find out more about us. And, you know, you know, I believe and we believe that, you know, joining a church is a good reason. And there's reasons for it. Biblical, right? Christ was committed to the church. Ephesians 5, he said that he's comparing the love Christ had for the church, the love a husband has for his wife. He says, as Christ loved the church, that's how husbands are to love their wives. And he says, because Christ gave himself up for the church. So Christ was committed to the church. We should be committed to church. Another reason, there's a cultural reason, right? Because in our, our society today, no one wants to be committed to anything, right? And, and church membership, right, it, it flies against the idea of a consumer religion, right? Um, uh, church membership means you're not just an attender, you are a contributor. There's a practical reason, right? Every team has a roster, every army has an enlistment, and uh, a church membership de defines who can be counted on. And there's a personal reason, right? You know, you grow best when you're planted. And so I encourage you to pray about it, watch those videos. And uh, if you're a member, I encourage you to re-up, right? Re-enlist next week. Um, because, you know, as I, I've said the last few Sundays, COVID just kind of messed everything up. But guess what? They're still hurting people in this world. There's still lonely people that need a family. There's still lost people that need Jesus, right? And we need to get our act together and say, hey, you know what? I'm hitting reset, and it's time to get busy doing what God wants us to do, okay? Uh, those, those videos are available. I sent links. They're going to be on our website this week. You know, I did them in little bite-side chunks, you know, so they're incredible. You just love them, right? You know, and, and uh, with that being said, <laughs> Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this opportunity to, God, to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. 
We thank you that we can approach you and call you our Father. And God, I pray this morning as we lean into your word that you would just guide and direct us. I pray we'll leave this place inspired and motivated to live kingdom lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's do this. Question number one, what is the kingdom? And now, now we don't use the word kingdom very much. When we do, it's usually maybe talking about the United Kingdom or the Magic Kingdom. And listen, in each of these cases, a kingdom is a specific geographical place defined by its borders. So in English, kingdom primarily refers to a place. But understand the emphasis of the Greek word for kingdom is not on a place, but rather on the reign or the rule of a king. In fact, some Bibles actually translate the word kingdom of God as reign of God or the rule of God. And Jesus in Luke chapter 17 made it about as clear as anyone could that his kingdom is not about a place. He said this, Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. And listen, the 14 words of Jesus' prayer that we're beginning to unpack really drive home the point of what the kingdom is. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to really grasp the the meaning of these words, it's helpful to talk a little bit about Hebrew poetry. You see, many times in Hebrew poetry, the second line repeats the truth of the first line, but from a slightly different angle. A few examples. Proverbs 10, verse 9. The man of integrity walks securely, but he who takes crooked paths will be found out. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. Second line, a haughty spirit before a fall. One more. A perverse man stirs up dissension. And a gossip separates close friends. So now we have your kingdom come, your will be done. And so what is Jesus teaching? He's saying that the kingdom is the place where God's will is done. Done how? Done as it is done in heaven. By the way, that's it's singular, not plural. Like, come down. And how is God's will done in heaven? Always done, instantly done, constantly done, completely done, humbly done, and joyfully done. In fact, there's only one being in heaven who didn't do God's will. As we read in Revelation chapter 12, he got kicked out along with his comrades. So what is the kingdom? Answer, the rule or reign of God within the heart of men. Get it? Good. Now, what does the kingdom look like? Like, what would the earth look like if God's will, if God's rule was supreme? Now, we can barely imagine, like it boggles our mind. But the good news is that the writers of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, spent a great deal of time reflecting on what the earth would look like if it were perfectly aligned with the kingdom of God. But understand, because this involves a spiritual reality, and spiritual reality is very hard to Described because we're finite and fallen, for the most part, the writers used imagery to convey what life on earth would look like under God's reign. So let's take a look at some of those images. 
and see what it would look like if God's kingdom, if God's will was done on earth and it is done in heaven. Now the Bible talks about this in the spheres of different spheres of human life. First of all, there's a sphere of economics and human need. The Apostle John writes in Revelation 7, 16 about the day when God's kingdom is fully realized. And he says, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. I mean, think about what that would look like. The elimination of hunger. Uh, no more pictures of children with swollen bellies. And no more mothers trying to scrounge around to find enough food so that their children could survive another day. But listen, it's not just the end of poverty the writers also talk about great abundance that would occur in God's kingdom. The prophet Amos writes this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes, when new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Now, we understand that this was written to people who lived in a desert environment where they had to wait for the rain, where the ground wasn't very fertile, but Amos says all that changes in the kingdom of God. He says that in the kingdom of God, the one who plows and the one who reaps keep bumping into each other because there's so much abundance. He also says that new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. Now, it doesn't mean that there's literally going to be Chardonnay flowing from the Rockies. It's an image of abundance, of God's abundance. In our terms, we would say something like, Every day, the stock market will end a little higher than the day before. The bull will dwell on Wall Street forever. Everyone's pantry will be full, and they'll run out of deposit slips for their savings account because they have so much money. Then there's the sphere of politics, which in our human history is a story of conflict. Got any? Isaiah says, God will judge between the nations, and he will settle disputes for many people. And just think about these words. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. No more fighting, no more hatred, no more wars, no more conflict. And listen, the kingdom of God, there's no more need for swords, so they will beat their swords into farming equipment. One writer putting it into modern terms says, Intercontinental ballistic missile silos will be converted into training tanks for inner city kids to learn how to scuba dive. You see, in God's kingdom, there's peace, no such thing as enemies. Then in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, it says, The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Now, he's not saying there's going to be some kind of upheaval in the animal kingdom, but instead, he's talking about radical social transformation among the people of God. You see, in the kingdom of God, those who were natural enemies will become friends because all the walls of hostility that divide people in our world are knocked down in the kingdom of God forever. Amen? I, I like what Paul says in Galatians. He says this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. For through faith, for all of you, who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave or free. Nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to 
the promise, right? No division. We're all the same. We're all God's children. And that's why I reject any teaching, any worldview, any theory that seeks to label people and separate people into categories. That's how they may do it in our world. You know, are you white? Are you black? Are you old? Are you young? Are you rich? Are you poor? But that's not what we do in the kingdom of God, right? We are all one. We are all children of God. All division is gone. Amen? And those who are wolf-like, those who have power, well, in the kingdom of God, they'll no longer use that power to oppress and take advantage of the vulnerable, but instead they'll use their power to help, encourage, and uplift the least of these. Yes, the world would be at peace if the kingdom of God was fully realized. Again, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the dog will make peace with the rabbit, and the cat will be no more. <laughs> I'm sorry. I could, never, I could never get, you know, resist the temptation for a good cat joke, right? I'm not against cats, not really, kind of, sort of, but some people love cats, and bless your heart, right? They cats. Woo! Let's hear it for cats. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and then there's the sphere of everyday life. I understand when teenage girls in the kingdom of God look at magazine covers and look in the mirror, they'll think to themselves, I look just right. Because society would have learned to see and celebrate the beauty that God sees when he looks at human beings made in his image. So whether shape or size or color, they would look in the mirror and say, I look just right. John also says when the kingdom of God comes, that there'll be no more seas. And he's not saying, hey, there'll be no boating or fishing. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that there'll be no more separation. You see, in the ancient world, seas is what separated nations and people, divided them. But in the kingdom of God, people are no longer separated by race, by ethnicity, skin color, education, economic status, or political parties. In Luke one seventeen, we read, that the kingdom of God will also redeem family life. And he will, Luke 117, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. Understand the kingdom of God, there's no more separation, no more abuse, no more neglect, no more unloved or wanted children. In the kingdom of God, members of families will stay up late at night to figure out how they can outserve one another. Children will insist that their little brother get the biggest piece of cake and they will race to see who gets to do the dishes. And they'll watch program. Hello? Hey, Lord. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think they're paying attention. <laughs> so much for making, ah, oh, that hurt my ears so bad. If you're visiting the IRA professional here, oh, that, wow. You know how loud that was? I, don't try that at home. That, was, that wasn't God. Oh, goodness. And the kingdom of God. <laughs> hey, it's what you get, y'all. In the kingdom of God, people will watch TV shows on daytime TV with titles like my spouse secretly loves me twice as much as I thought they did. How my mom and dad were always there for me. And my teenagers just keep doing good things. Yeah, King of God, y'all. 
And then maybe the most beautiful words of all about the kingdom, Revelation 21, will come true. And I heard a loud voice saying, now the dwelling place of God is with men. He will live with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And think about these words. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Question, does anyone want to live in a world like that? No more Kleenex, no more funerals, no more hospital ICUs. We'll turn our caskets into toy chests. And hearses will be converted into sports utility vehicles with names like Eternal Voyager and Jeep Grand Resurrection. <laughs> and yes, there'll be counselors. But you only go to them when you're so full of joy and gratitude that you'll just pay someone to listen to how great and wonderful your life is. And every day you'll be at home with God, never separated. In Ezekiel 36, 26, it says, God makes this promise. I'll remove their hearts of stone and replace them with the heart of flesh. No more stony hearts. No more cold hearts. No more stubborn hearts. And listen, never again will you say something that you'll regret later. You'll never do anything to be ashamed of or feel guilty about. And when you see someone else's success or beauty or wealth, it won't even occur to you be, to be envious but only to rejoice as if you had those things yourselves. Let's think about this one. You will see the living God. No more doubt, no more questions, no more why. Yes, you will look in the face of God and he will be your God and you will be his people. And your every thought will be a prayer and your every prayer will be a conversation with God. And God himself will wipe every tear from your eye and then he'll remove the tear ducts, and he'll point his finger at sadness and sorrow, and they'll be banished forever. And there will be joy that's inexpressible. Isaiah 55, 12 says that even the trees of the field will clap their hands. Maple Grove, that's what it'll look like when God's kingdom comes to earth. That's what it looks like for God's will to rule in the hearts of men. Get it? Good. But if you're like me, a part of you wonders, is it even possible for this earth to redeem? I mean, will that day ever really come when God's will is fully done? Like, is this real or is it just wishful thinking? Which leads to the next question, which is a huge question, which has an incredible life-altering and world-impacting answer. Where is the kingdom? Answer, the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is already here. And now we know that the kingdom, that the perfect rule of God is coming. We know that one day the trumpet will sound, the archangel will shout, the sky will split open, and Jesus Christ will descend and make everything new. Revelation eleven fifteen says this, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was loud voices shouting in heaven. What were they shouting? The whole world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The whole world has become the kingdom of God. Yes, the kingdom of God is coming. And it's going to be, it's going to be beyond awesome to one day live where God's rule in the hearts of men is experienced in all his fullness. When the whole 
world is the kingdom of God. But listen, in a very real way, the kingdom of God is already here. You hold on your hat, put down your suitcase, because 2,000 years ago, Jesus came not merely to save you from your sins and punch your ticket to heaven as needed and as awesome as they were, but he came to establish his kingdom. I understand the kingdom was a central focus of Jesus' ministry. He taught about the kingdom. He told parables to describe the kingdom. And he came to establish the kingdom. Truth be told, he couldn't stop talking about the kingdom. In fact, he talked about the kingdom more than he talked about faith, love, and prayer added together. The kingdom was always on his mind and on his lips from the beginning to the end of his ministry. After 40 days of fasting and praying and battling the evil one in the wilderness, he returns to Galilee do, to do what he came to do. And we read in Matthew four seventeen, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And, and, and the tense of this, this Greek word means it's here and it's been here. And just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, we read this. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in this, their synagogues, preaching the good news, of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. In Luke 44, 43, Jesus could not make any clearer the importance of the kingdom. Here's what he says. I must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So I'm here. That's why I was sent. In the final weeks in Jerusalem, we see Jesus talking about the kingdom with the 12 in the upper room, with the, with the teachers and Scribes at the temple, and when he stood beaten and bound before Pilate. And what do you think Jesus' favorite topic was between his resurrection and his ascension? Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proof that he was alive and appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And guess what we find this guy's talking about in the book of Acts? The kingdom. Check out the very last verse in the book of Acts. Boldly, without hindrance, he, that would be Paul, did what? Preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Kingdom was without a doubt the central theme of Jesus' ministry. And listen, when Jesus arrived on earth, his people, the Jews, were waiting for the kingdom. They've been waiting for a couple thousand years. And for the last 700 years, they have been waiting as a defeated, exiled, and occupied people. And listen, when Jesus entered the world, he didn't enter in a vacuum. He entered and everybody was waiting for him to come, though they were all waiting differently. Some waited as zealots who said, the reason we're oppressed is because we're too passive. If we only have the courage to rise up and slit a few Roman throats, God would give us victory. Their philosophy was, let's attack and let's fight the world. Some waited as Essenes, who said the only way to please God is to isolate ourselves from the sinful world, to create an alternate society out in the desert, build our fortress, erect our walls, establish a safe haven, and stay inside them. Some waited as Herodians, named for the puppet king Herod, 
And they said to rebel was suicide. Resistance is futile. We'd be crushed. No, we should make the best of our situation, cooperate, play the game. Their motto was, let's compromise, make friends with, and become like the world around us. So others waited as Pharisees who said, the Lord would send us a Messiah if we were just more righteous, if we would follow rules better. There's too much sin. If people were more like us and less like prostitutes and tax collectors, God would bring this oppression to the end and set up his kingdom. It's the sinner's fault that the Messiah's not here. Let's create tougher rules for all those sinners to follow. But regardless of how they waited, they all wanted the same thing. Their enemies defeated, returned from exile, and to once again become the people that God wanted them to be. You see, they knew three things. They knew that God had a plan to put things once again under his rule. They knew that this plan involved them. And they knew that it would come to a powerful climax when the promised Messiah came. Then one day, Jesus, a 30-year-old blue-collar worker from a hick town, came and said, hey, guys, kingdom's here. And yeah, I know it's not what you expected. No, I'm not going to overthrow Rome. In fact, I'm going to let them kill me. Yeah, I know your hope is that when Messiah comes, that we'll go backwards, back to the 12 tribes in Jerusalem. And I want you to know that I have my sight sets much higher than that. I'm not just interested in a nation or a city. I'm interested in making disciples of all nations and all cities. I'm not moving backward, but forward to global domination. A domination achieved not, not by power and might, but through grace and truth. And through kingdom lives lived out by my people. Again, I know it's not what you were expecting or wanted. Nevertheless, the kingdom is here. Yes, the kingdom you have been waiting for has arrived. Question, where's the kingdom? Yes, one day it will be fully realized. And what a day of rejoicing that will be. But in a very real way, the kingdom is already here. And it's been here for 2,000 years, ever since Jesus arrived on the planet and established his church. A few verses for you. Colossians 1, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. Hebrews 12, 28. We should be grateful that we were given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's good to know, right? Because all earthly kingdoms can be shaken, even our great country. And in this kingdom, we please God by worshiping him and showing him great honor and respect. <laughs> Revelation 1.6, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, man, that's good news, and has made us to be, to be what? To be a kingdom and priests to serve God and is to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. I mean, Jesus said to his guys in Matthew 16, truly I tell you, some are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Understand, the arrival of Jesus made it possible for the kingdom, for the reign of God to become a living reality in the lives of his people like never before. Understand, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit has unleashed a new age full of 
new and incredible possibilities for God's people. Jesus came to establish the kingdom. He came to get back what was lost in the garden. You see, since the garden, the earth has been the battlefield of two opposing kingdoms. But that's not the whole story. You see, once the world fell into enemy hands, God determined to win it back at all costs. And that meant sending his message through kings and prophets and priests. That meant rising up a nation through whom he would bless the whole world. Uh, That meant rescuing from bondage, parting waters, defeating enemies, crumbling walls, slaying giants, and conquering nations. And ultimately, that meant that he himself would have to enter the conflict in order to reclaim the world from Satan, the evil one. I love how C.S. Lewis describes this world in his book, Mere Christianity. Lewis says that the earth is enemy-occupied territory. And he goes on to say that Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. He says this, Jesus, our king, has established outposts of the kingdom, little pinpoints of light that hold the promise of better things to come, little pinpoints of light where his people Show this world a different and better way to live. You see, when Jesus says the kingdom is near, he's not saying it's just getting close. He's saying it's now available. Understand, in human history, one life has already been lived on this earth where God's will had unhindered sway, where God's will was always done, instantly done, constantly done, completely done, humbly done, and joyfully done. And here's the awesome part. Jesus says to the church, he says to the Christian, he says to you and he says to me that it's now possible for his kingdom to come into the lives of his people, that it's now possible to live lives that are radically different than the world around us. Because he reigns and because he lives in us. I like what Frances Chan writes. She says, I'm tired of living in a way that looks exactly like people who do not have the Holy Spirit living in them. I want to consistently live with an awareness of his strength. I want to be different today from what I was yesterday as the fruit of the Spirit becomes manifest in me. I don't know about you. I can agree with that, right? I'm tired of living in a way that looks exactly like people who do not have the Holy Spirit of God living in them. I want to consistently live with an awareness of his strength. I want to be different today from what I was yesterday as the fruit of the Spirit becomes manifest in me. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's available to live in now. And listen, just as supernatural power was available to Jesus to heal the lame, cleanse the leper, open blind eyes, raise the dead, the power for radical transformation and authentic kingdom living is at hand is available to every Jesus follower in this room. It's been available for 2,000 years. In fact, the only thing keeping this incredible supernatural power from lighting up our world and transforming us into a new creation, causing rivers of living water to flow out from within us is our own decision whether or not to tap into that power. Imagine a farmer living back in the days when the use of electricity just began to spread across the landscape. 
I mean, the poles are set and the wires have been run on the road just outside his property. And all he has to do in order to radically change his life is to tap into that power. The kingdom of God is coming and it's here. The poles have been set and the wires were run 2,000 years ago. When Christ came, died for our sins, and sent his spirit. Kingdom is here, it's unshakable, it's awesome, it's powerful, it's unstoppable. And it's a reflection of the heart of God. Which is why in the kingdom, the people are usually last in our world. The sick, the elderly, the poor, the least fortunate. Are not only not ignored, they're treated as if they're the most important people of all. Rejoice greatly, people of God. Shout for joy, body of Christ. Your king has come and the kingdom is here. And if you want it more than anything else, as any sane person would, Jesus simply says, follow me. Follow me and learn from me how to live in my Father's kingdom. You see, you don't really need me or anyone else to tell you what a Christian is supposed to be or do. You just need to follow Jesus. You just need to be like him. Do the things that he did when he walked the earth. Bring the kingdom of God, the reign of God into your world like Jesus brought it into his Remember, there's a kingdom of darkness that is stealing the hopes, the dreams, and the lives of so many people in our world. And God has not called us to be like the Essenes and build our own Christian fortress and isolate from the world. He's not called us to be like the Herodians and compromise and become like the world. He's not called us to be like the zealots and sharpen our swords and attack and fight the world. He's not called us to be like the Pharisees and sit in our houses of self-righteousness, pointing our fingers at the sinful world. And said he's called us, empowered us through his spirit to invade the kingdom of darkness with the light of Christ. Amen? Listen, the spirit enables and empowers us to live lives that are radically different than the world. Lives that are meek, lives that are pure in heart, lives that are peacemaking, lives that are full of mercy, Lives that turn the other cheek, that go the second mile, that pray for our enemies. Lives where our yes means yes and our no means no. Lives where we refuse the lust and we turn aside from anger. Lives where we, where we forgive those who hurt us. And lives where we put the needs of others before the needs of our own. And, and lives that come together to form a community, to form a church, to form a Jesus gathering... And that gives the world a picture of living that takes their breath away. One of the guys I've been reading for this study is a guy named Brian McLaren. And he talks about how the real difference in the world is made by those who live out the message of the kingdom in their daily lives. And he says that when Christianity sees itself more as a belief system or a set of rituals for the select few... Unless there's a way of daily life available to all, it loses its kingdom magic. When Christianity sees us up more as a belief system, so we are as a belief system, or a set of rituals for the select few, unless as a way of daily living available to all, it loses its kingdom magic. And then he talks about how 
when he was visiting some of the great cathedrals in England and wondering why on the average week they attract 10 times as many tourists as they do worshipers, he writes this. It's so good. One of my hunches is that the Christian religion continues to sing and preach and teach about Jesus, but in too many places, not all, it is largely forgotten, misunderstood, or become distracted from Jesus' kingdom message. When we drifted from understanding and living out his essential message of the kingdom, we became like flavorless salt or a burned-out light bulb, so boring that people just walked away. We may have talked about going to heaven after we die, but not about God's will being done on earth before we die. We may have pressured people to be moral and good or correct and orthodox, to avoid hell after death, but we didn't inspire them with the possibility of becoming beautiful and fruitful to heal the earth in this life. We, have, we may have instructed them about how to be a good Baptist, Presbyterian, Catholic, or Methodist on Sunday, but we didn't train, challenge, inspire them to live out the kingdom of God in their jobs, neighborhoods, families, schools, and societies between Sundays. We try to make nice people, quiet citizens of the earthly kingdom, and energetic consumers in their earthly economies but we didn't fire them up and inspire them to invest and sacrifice their time, intelligence, money, and energy in the revolutionary cause of the kingdom of God. But we didn't fire them up and inspire them to invest and sacrifice their time, intelligence, money, energy in the revolutionary cause of the kingdom of God, end quote. And I say it's time to reverse that tide. And truly begin to invest and sacrifice our time, our intelligence, our money, and our energy in the kingdom of God and the cause of Christ. So that we can more fully be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I think it's time for our faith to become, to move beyond our obsession with ourselves. To become obsessed with his kingdom, to be assessed with becoming little outposts of light in this dark world, holding out the promise of better things to come, showing the world a different and a better way to live. The kingdom is here. It's available now. I mean, you and I can now live Kingdom lives, radical lives, revolutionary lives. Lives that look like Jesus and draw people to him. You know, I need to tell you, there's a lot of hurting people in the world, right? Anybody know any hurting? Anybody know anybody that's lost? Anybody know anybody that thinks church is irrelevant? Why bother? You know, we're part of the kingdom of God. And the world needs us. And God is counting on us. Not to be so self-focused, but to be focused on the things and the difference we can make in the lives of other people. To not just come to church on Sunday, but live for Jesus between Sundays. And this brings us to the last point in your notes. It'll be pretty quick, because like I said, we're going to cover this next week. Dive a little deeper about the kingdom. 
I wanted to show you so many verses like, hey, this is not some obscure thing that Steve is talking about. Kingdom is like everywhere. Jesus is obsessed with it. And it's kind of cool. We're diving in deeper next week of Membership Sunday, right? What a timing, right? Because I think it's time to get real. It's time to get serious. It's time to commit it, right? It's time to get real. It's time to get serious. And it's time to get committed about our walk. Now, what does it mean to pray these words? Like I said, this will be quick because we'll hit it again. We talked about what it is, what it looks like, and where it is. What does it mean to pray these words? Our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. First, it means my kingdom must go. See, God's kingdom cannot come into your life until your kingdom goes. Your kingdom and God's kingdom, your will and God's will cannot coexist in the same time in the same place. Great example is Jesus, right? Remember what he said in Matthew 26, 39? Not, it could, if possible, can this cup pass for me? Yet not my will, but what? But your will, right? So what you're, what you're praying, it's not easy prayer to pray. Father, help my kingdom to go. Help making life all about me to go so that your kingdom can come. Also means you're praying your kingdom come. And you're praying that God's kingdom will come in your life. Lord, may your kingdom, may your will come into my life. Question, what would it look like for the kingdom to come, for God's will to be done in your life, in your home, in your relationship, in your marriage, in your speech, in your attitudes, in your work, in your finances? God, may your kingdom come in the lives of people in your world. Lord, I pray that your kingdom would come in, in the life of my coworkers, of my husband, of my neighbor. You need to pray that his kingdom will come in the lives of people at Maple Grove. Lord, may your kingdom come and may your will be done at Maple Grove. And you need to pray that his kingdom and his will be done in this world. Lord, may your kingdom come to Charlottesville and beyond. And we need to pray that and believing that it makes a difference. Again, we'll dive in deeper next week. Just a, a concluding thought. Many years ago, Robert Foss wrote a poem about a traveler who came to a crossroad. And he had to make a decision. You see, he, he couldn't travel down both roads. And it was obvious that one road many people had traveled. And the other road, it was obvious that not many people had walked down that road. It was not traveled that much. And he concludes his poem with these words. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I took the one less traveled. And that has made all the difference. And believe me when I tell you, the road where we regularly pray and strive to live out, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is most definitely the road less traveled. And I pray that you and I will have the courage to take that road. And when we do, we will find that it will make all the difference. Father God, we humbly come before you. And oh Lord, to be honest, sometimes I feel so inadequate when I stand up here and strive to speak for you. Lord, I know how important 
The kingdom was to Jesus. I know he established it, Lord. I know you've made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve you. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would move in us. And, and God, where I failed to say what needed to be said in the right way, God, that, that everyone in this room will see the potential, God, the things you want to do in us and the things you want to do through us for this dark world, God. God, help us to become a church, Lord. Help us to become a little outpost of your kingdom that lets the world know that there's better things to come and shows them a better way to live. In Jesus' name, amen.